Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Officer, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Hi, everybody. I'm excited to have you back on another episode of Shouse in the House. Um, I have with me today Mark Milky, or uh, do you prefer Dr. Milky? Um, Mark he is, is fine. A, <laughs> um, he is a PhD. Um, he works in public policy. He's an analyst. He's an author, a keynote speaker. Um, today, he's here to discuss specifically his latest book, The Victim Cult, and how grievance culture and blame of blame hurts everyone in wreck civilizations. That's the full title of the book, but the victim cult in general. Um, I'm very excited to have him on. Mark, would you please tell my audience a little bit about you, how you got into writing and things like that? Sure. I started with a taxpayer rights organization about 25 years ago now, and that was probably my first introduction to public policy. Um, I was a journalist maybe for six months back in the 1990s. Turns out that wasn't my talent. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I like numbers and data, and I try and anchor us all in reality. And uh, look, my theory is, uh, you know, is that ideas change, um, can change culture, can change history, at least if they're anchored in reality and sometimes not, right? Marxists weren't connected to reality in the 20th century. Uh, woke folk, in my view, are not now. <laughs> and uh, so, um, but if, if you're connected to reality, um, you know, and you, you know, uncover some great uh, data and, and illustrate them with stories, right? Uh, I, I mean, I grew up during the Cold War. I picked up National Review, William F. Buckley's National Review, I think, in a used bookstore when I was like 15. I thought, this is great stuff. It's witty. It's got a sense of humor, you know, and he's got the right view on like free enterprise and all of, all of the rest of it and, and the leadership of the West. But the victim called, in essence, has come out of maybe all of that. And um, my career as a public policy analyst at various think tanks and my previous books, uh, The Victim Cult is really about civilization, Western civilization, um, in particular, you know, the, the United States leadership in that is worth preserving. It's worth something. It's worth a lot. Uh, it's what ke has kept most of the world free. I mean, North, South Korea would look like North Korea today if it wasn't for U.S. troops there. So and I'm, I'm dismayed by the attacks on. Uh, really, the civilizational legacies, uh, you know, from Great Britain to the United States forward, uh, you know, whether we're talking uh, really about, uh, you know, property rights in the Magna Carta or we're talking about 1776 and, um, and, and the wonderful leadership that the United States has displayed over the past uh, in the post-war world. Right. Um, I, I wanted to talk about, first of all, I'd let our audience know you are in Canada, Correct. I am. Uh, don't hold it against me. There's this whole joke about Canadians and headlines about uh, worthwhile Canadian initiative being the most boring headline in the world. Uh, but hopefully that's not true about the book. No, the book was fantastic. I, um, It's funny. I, Whenever I originally was going to open, I was going to say, you're Canadian, right? Okay, never mind. Just kidding. Interview over, you know. And, you know but I wouldn't really do that. Um, yeah. You actually... Canada at this point is more American than America is, if we're really being honest, like with what you guys have going on with your protests mm. and, and all of that. It's just, I'm really proud of you guys as a country right now. So it's, it's. Well, thank you. That's uh that's a, that's a great take on, on Canada and the truckers protests. I mean, look, my, my view in general is we, we want, we want to be careful whether you call yourself a small C conservative or whatever it is, or a classical liberal or libertarian. One wants to be careful about preserving the institutions built up over time with blood and treasure. Um, so, you know, but I understand the, the the angst on the part of the truckers and others that they, they want to kind of get back to normal and they don't want an overreaching government. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a thing that Americans may not know is that Canada was actually, as we would describe it today, conservative, um, but classically liberal, but conservative ideologically before the United States was. I mean, if you go back 100 years, it was Canada that had lower taxes and attachment to liberty. Uh, you know, back when progressives were running the United States in the 1910s, 1920s, and enacting all sorts of new taxes and regulations, Canada was still a small C, what we would call today a small C conservative country or a classically liberal country, because it, its tradition came from Great Britain, right? Adam Smith. And we never abandoned that, right? We never tossed out the Brits like you guys did. So uh, we did have this tradition of really smaller government and liberty. Uh, but people today think that's an American concept. And I have to remind my fellow Canadians, no, that's very much a British inheritance for both countries. Right. Um, I want to go ahead and get into the book a little bit. Uh, you start off with 
And actually, I'll be honest with you, Mark, your takes are somewhat controversial. I'm surprised um, that you haven't gotten more pushback, I guess, than what you have so far, because um, as as you state in your book, the the culture right now is incredibly, people like to seek out victimhood. And your book very much calls out anyone who's doing that from the right-hand side, so the Donald Trump individuals, all the way to institutional racism and things like that. So I I wanted to touch really quick, you open with, it, it feels very much like a boy who cried wolf situation. So, and what I mean by that is, we'll use the Me Too movement in, for as my example. The Me Too movement came out and you had women claiming sexual assault for things like having their shoulder brushed against at a party or something. And you've diluted what could actually be genuine concerns of victimhood, genuine sexual assault cases, genuine, you know, grievances that people may have within that that movement or that, and you've diluted that and made it where now nobody believes any woman. It's like, oh no, you're just part of that, you know? And so it feels like this, this grievance culture, this victim culture has created a dilution across the board of anything being accepted as truth anymore. It has. If everyone's a victim, then no one is, right? Um, right. I mean, you're right about the dilution of the concept. And there, there are real victims. And nothing in the victim cult, as you already know, I, I don't downplay real tragedies or real victimization. I do try and put it in some context. I do try and challenge those in the victim cult who I think are not necessarily victims or take their victimhood too far or trace their own status today. Uh, to, you know, uh, tragedies of, of 100 years ago or victimization of 100 years ago over their tribe, so to speak, right? Eth ethnicity, right. color, gender, whatever it is, whatever tribe one, one wants to identify by. So in the victim cult, I do, uh, I do try and put all that in context, but there is something to that. I mean, look, if Yale students in 2015 who are worried about cultural appropriation at Halloween, if they're victims... Uh, and they're victims of microaggression at the same time as they claim. If that's real victimization, then how can you, I mean, how can you possibly put that on the same level or even consider it victimization vis-a-vis -vis Jews in Nazi Germany or slaves before 1865 or the discrimination against, which I write about in the victim cult as well, the discrimination that Asian Americans triumphed over that existed between 1850 and about 1950. Uh, the actual institutional discrimination, not, not what's claimed to be institutional today. So those were real victims. And there are real victims created every day in our world. I mean, there's what, seven, eight billion of us alive today. And in the history of the planet, there's probably been about 110 human, you know, 110 billion human beings alive and died and born and died. So you know, just because of the numbers alone, we're going to bump into each other. We're going to create unintentional tragedies. Um, and of course, you know, nature, you know, Mother Nature has her own way of creating tragedies. And so there's no shortage of real victims in, in world history. Um, and we should have sympathy for those who are. But this book kind of came out of an observation that we all know someone who thinks like a victim, whether they are or not. And they dwell on it in that, in that a little bit too long. Or in some cases, they're not real victims. And also, I, the book, you know, people always want to know, why did you write the book? What was the inspiration? I grew up near a reservation in, in southern Canada. And um, one, though, that has become very prosperous and very flourishing. And it's because they took the best from around them. Uh, you know, the landscape, I mean, they live near a lake, the vineyards nearby, they created a very prosperous reservation to use it in American terms, Indian reservation, I think is the term that used to be, you know, applied to, you know, such entities, in the United States, we call them slightly differently up in Canada. But I grew up near a reservation. And I noticed and I've noticed since because I've done public policy on what are called Indian issues or indigenous issues these days. The successful leaders and communities are those who don't forget the past or deny it or whitewash it. But they kind of bracket it and say, we've got to move on. We've got to take the best from what's around us. And that's actually, that's the history of success on the, on, you know, on, that's the history of success on the planet, which is that you beg, borrow, or steal from other cultures. What's called cultural appropriation is, is very much a good thing. You say, I'm going to take the best ideas from other cultures, even if they oppressed my ancestors, right? I mean, we see this now, for example, and I write about this in the victim cult in Hong Kong. I mean, if you're in Hong Kong, you're latching on to the legacy of, of the British, right? Who ran that as a colony right. until 1997 and had property rights, free enterprise. I mean, they were more, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, they were more attached to that than Americans are. 
you know, or certainly Canadians. And they they treasured their British inheritance, not because, you know, they I don't know if they valued everything about the British, but vis-a-vis -vis China, Beijing, of course, Hong Kongers wanted a free, uh, you know, an open society, which they're losing now to yeah. Beijing. But they're a great example of saying, uh, and I don't, I've met Hong Kongers. I was there, you know, some years ago and talking to all of them. They, they very much valued the Western legacy of freedom and individual rights, and freedom of the press and free enterprise, uh, again, which they're losing now. And unlike many people in the West at Yale or other colleges or, you know, our chattering classes in the media and, and, and in politics often that downplay the value of Western civilization, especially English civilization and our inheritances and, you know, life, liberty, liberty and the pursuit of happiness again. This is mocked. It shouldn't be because it came at a great cost. I mean, that's a roundabout way of, of saying what that. Yeah, there, there are. Um, there, there are attacks on this legacy, and I, I'm very concerned about that. But uh, the, the most successful flourishing cultures in the world, whether they're Indian reservations or whether they're territories like Hong Kong traditionally or whether the United States beg, borrow and steal from the best of history and try and bracket the bad stuff that's happened. So I, I want to go back because you had mentioned um, – previous oppression and people utilizing that to make themselves victims now, whether that be Asian Americans, um, African Americans, Jewish Americans, and, or, or just, just Jewish, Asian, or our Blacks in general. Um, here in the United States, you draw the um, parallels between slavery with um, African Americans versus the Asian Americans that went were the J Japanese who were put into internment camps during World War II. And if if both are to be, you know, victims, then why isn't the Asian American culture victimizing themselves now? They they just turned around and said, you know what, we're going to persevere through this. Why do you think that there's a difference between how that's being treated or how that's moving forward? Why do we find that people are using racism as a a, a victimization for past grievances? whereas the Asian culture isn't? Well, I think simplistic links are being drawn, right? So when you examine census data, U.S. census data, what you find is that on average, black Americans make less than white Americans and white Americans make less than Asian Americans. Now, people, you know, kind of stop before they get to the Asian American incomes and go, well, the differences in outcomes on average must be due to racism. But as I quote in the, in the victim cult, I, I look at the work of Thomas Sowell and others, and I dig out some original new data from the U.S. census. And what you find is, you know, East Asian Americans, you know, Indian Americans, East Indian Americans, rather, you know, those whose origins or family origins are in Taiwan or in Japan or um, Korea, they're at the top of the income heap. Um, so you really can't use racism to say, well, that's that that explains all vis-a-vis, -vis, say, black Americans. And Thomas Sowell has pointed this out time and again, that, you know, dual income black couples with a university education made as much as white Americans by, I think it was the 1980s, mid 1980s. Um, but people draw simplistic links. They see averages um, and think that, you know, they, they have some theory. And the today's theory is that it's all due to past or present institutional racism. And there's a number of mistakes with that. Averages hide a whole bunch of things. Average education levels among black Americans or Mexican Americans, for example, are much lower. I think they're about a fifth of Taiwanese Americans. So, of course, the Taiwanese are, you know, those who have origins in Taiwan are going to earn a lot more because their education levels, I mean, about four fifths of them, I believe, have a bachelor's degree. So, of course, they're going to earn more. Of course, their averages are going to be higher. So it's not due to racism. Uh, and then there's the, the, you know, the shibboleth about institutional racism. Institutional racism in the United States and in most countries was real and most countries still is. The United States wiped away institutional racism with reforms in 1964 and 1968 to 1972, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, you can meet a person who's bigoted. You can meet someone who has personal prejudice. But that's not the same as institutional racism where, you know, certain neighborhoods wouldn't allow in black Americans or Jewish Americans or Chinese Americans, say, in 1930s or whatever. So so there's this great simplicity or simplification, wrong simplification uh, and conflation of, you know, someone's a personal bigot with institutional racism. And, wrong and that's the tragedy here. Wrong cause and effect links. Because let's flip it over. The positive part of this is, look, um, any American, uh, look, you know, within reason, I mean, you know, education is costly. I and mean, that's that's another issue, but higher education. But 
uh, education can lead to better outcomes for any cohort, any group, any person. Um, and in fact, that's the story in the victim cult of the success of Asian Americans who faced tremendous discrimination between 1850 and 1950, basically when Chinese immigrants began to arrive from China to the gold rush in California. Initially, they're welcomed. But soon, you know, the greater flow of them seemed to, you know, produce a reaction, produce some prejudice in California and elsewhere across the country. And what they did, though, um, was they continually pushed back. Um, you know, they won some battles in courts, for example, against local ordinances that tried to shut down Chinese laundries in San Francisco and New York. Uh, some battles they won, some battles they lost. But um, it's quite, you know, and obviously uh, those of Asian origin uh, who emigrated to the United States never suffered slavery. So I, I think I think there's a number of things going on. Um, I think some black leaders um, are being simplistic about the link between outcomes now in education and incomes and the rest of it and, and you know, finances and past racism. Um, look, if you're if you're talking 1866 versus 1865, of course you can make that direct link. But about a century and a half later, can you say outcomes today are really due to slavery? Uh, I question that in the victim cult. Uh, I, I think it's too simplistic. And in fact, I think it's an error, as Thomas Sowell and others have shown, that education, family, faith, all that matters much more um, and completely, really, vis-a-vis -vis slavery, which is now a century and a half old. You also draw a parallel between the the breakdown of um, the family unit as far as the the way that family unit units have broken down over time, and I the, I use this example, but I want to be really careful about how I say it because again, like I. I'm white, so I have a different experience than some people, but I went to school with a black student and we had the same teacher. We were given the same book. We were given the same school to, to rise through. Um, they didn't get a different education than me. They weren't put in a different classroom. We were given the same. Um, the difference was when she went home at night, her mom had to work two jobs because she was a single mother. I had both of my parents at home to help me with my homework and things like that. So her struggle wasn't in the classroom. Her struggle was having help at home when she got there. And I right. think that that is a, a very big difference for many families, white mm -hmm. or black. I, I, I mean, you can mm -hmm. draw that parallel for people in any sort of race, that if you have a single parent household, your, your life growing up is different than a family of, with two, both parents in the household. And you talk about that some within the book. What is some data or some research that you've come across that correlates with that? Well, again, if you, if you look at the, um, yeah, in the numbers in one of my early chapters in the victim cult, what you'll see is, and this was began to be identified in the 1950s and in the 1960s, that the black family was breaking down vis-a-vis -vis, you know, other Americans and that this was going to have consequences. And there was a famous paper that came out of the 1960s from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, later a, a Democratic senator from New York, uh, but at the time working in the Department of Labor, who said this is a concern because we know that this is going to affect you know, the ability of black families to succeed. Now, the reaction to that was pretty fierce. It was like, well, you're blaming the victim. I mean, there was actually a book written in 1972 by that name. Um, and But Moynihan's point and my point is no, nobody's blaming the victim. Um, we're simply pointing to a sociological development um, and, and that realistically, yeah, it's easier to manage a family with two parents as opposed to one. You know, it's it's easier to manage kids with two parents. Um, and, and so that's that is a problem. And what you see, again, is, for example, uh, American families of East Indian origin or background. Uh, are, are, you know, divorce is very rare. Family breakdown is very rare. Now, that could be both good and bad. I mean, that's a separate issue. I mean, sure. sometimes cultural norms can trap people in marriages and families they shouldn't be in. Uh, but that's a separate issue. If, right. if, you're, if we're simply talking about what leads to better incomes or, you know, what leads to educating your kids, being having the time to, you know, go over the homework with your child at night, obviously two parents matter. And that was, you know, that was the point of Thomas Sowell who's also, and again, back to the racism charge. The notion is that you, you hear this simplistically. Well, it's slavery that caused the breakdown of the black family. Again, Thomas Sowell, the famous black American economist, 91, and has written on this for 50 years, has said, and I quote him in the book, has said, no, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, but no, um, the black family began to break down in the 1950s 
there wasn't like this delayed time reaction of 70 or 80 years in slavery where all of a sudden the black family be began to break down, changing cultural norms. Um, the welfare state is, is something Thomas Sowell blames uh, for the breakdown of the American the black family and so on and so forth. So uh, and your observation is absolutely correct, Heather. Um, both you and your, your, your friend had similar education, had the exact same education. The difference was at home. And again, that's not to blame the victim. It's not to blame single parents. You know, if you have to, if you're going to step back and look at the statistics, you have to say, this is what's happening. Maybe this explains outcomes in education. Maybe this explains outcomes and in incomes more than blaming um, slavery, which has been long dead or even institutional discrimination. Uh, so again, there was much more institutional discrimination, real hard prejudicial walls, as we all know, until the 1960s, where black Americans couldn't go to the same restaurants as whites in some cities, couldn't even in places like Chicago, uh, as Walter Williams and others write about. Um, uh, so that existed. And yet education levels were rising among black Americans until the 1950s, and in some cases since, in selected examples. So um, even the prejudice of the era didn't keep black Americans from beginning to improve their lot. Uh, what eventually, you know, has has messed up the statistics, so to speak, with the improvements again is the breakdown of, of, of the family. And of course, this is also happening in white American families, uh, too. I mean, there's um, I mean, what's the book from 2012 on this? Um, got it somewhere on my shelf um, that traced the, the breakdown of, of the white American family since uh, I think it was 1980 as well and and showed similar similar patterns so the victim cult is really about again trying to get to the core of some of this stuff and say okay um regardless though again there's no shortage of examples of why people are in bad situations or victimized or tragedies right somebody has a single parent who has to work two jobs loves them to death but doesn't have the time to spend with them on homework and maybe they their grades suffer as a result um, someone else has suffered prejudice, especially someone who's, you know, if you're 70, 80 years old, you remember a real institutionally prejudiced age in the American South and maybe even in places like New York to some degree. Um, you know, if you're Thomas Sowell, you remember the prejudices of the 1940s and 50s and 60s. So, but the victim cult is about saying, okay, we understand all of that's happened. And, there, and everybody has had some victimization in their past. My grandmother was a victim of World War I, really, uh, where she was shipped around Europe as a child refugee and never learned how to read or write. Um, but, you know, she never used that as an excuse not to succeed in her own life and when she came to Canada. So um, the victim cult is about trying to bracket all that and then saying, okay, by the way, um, what happens if you have an entire culture or country that where people believe they are deeply victimized? And maybe that's where you want to go next, Heather. I mean, there are some warning signs I read about in the victim cult and examples of societies that have gone down this road where a good chunk of the population believes they're victimized, rightly or wrongly, and it leads to really um, murderous ends. I mean, to get a bit heavy, but uh, that's part of the victim cult as well. There's, I write about some pretty serious examples in history of, of how this can really go off the rails if people keep thinking of themselves as victims and convince everyone else around them they are too. Yeah, I I love what you do with you'll you'll kind of flip back and forth within the book. You'll go, here's a modern day example, here's a historical context where this mm -hmm. is not going to play out well if we don't mm -hmm. fix this. I really enjoyed how you did that throughout the book. Um before we go historical context, mm -hmm. I do want to touch on cuz you be briefly mentioned it in the intro, but about hold on, I want to make sure cuz I have all my notes like right here okay. on my thing. You the title of the chapter is where you said the fake victimhood of 20 something totalitarians. Right. Yeah. I absolutely love that because it's 100% accurate. Um, but the examples that you use, I want to specifically talk about Brett Weinstein. Um, yes. Because I think that that was one of the most egregious examples of where mob rule and mob mentality had a, a, an actual institution, a school apologize when there was nothing to apologize for. Like there was, right. there was nothing that happened that he did. And it was just, a, it was wildly insane to me the way that that whole scenario played out. So can we talk about that for just a little bit and how, how you think we got to this point? Like, what do you think? How do you think we got here at this point? Well, um, and I, I'll explain the the uh, Brett Weinstein example in a moment in Evergreen College there in Washington State. 
But uh, to answer the last question first, how we got here, I think there is a lack of historical understanding. And I think there's bad cause and effect links made often. Um, I think uh, perhaps the decline of faith or other allegiances uh, has led to an identification with one's, you know, people need to identify somehow, you know, they, they need to put themselves in some sort of context. If they're not identifying themselves by a particular faith or nationality, right, and proud of, say, America, maybe they, I think what's happening as well, and this is not just an American phenomenon, it's happening around the world, people again to again begin to identify with what's obvious, their skin color, their ethnicity, that sort of thing, which can be really dangerous because you can't change those, of course. Right. And that's, I think this identity politics movement is so dangerous. But with Brett Weinstein, so a professor at Evergreen College in Washington State, I guess traditionally there was this day once a year where black students and black faculty would leave. Um, and this had been a tradition for some time. And it was their way or, you know, it was a tradition because they were trying to say, this is what used to happen. where basically, you know, black Americans were invisible or shunted to the side. And it was their way of reminding, I guess, their colleagues and others. Um, but this was what it was like for some people way back when, you know, or in select communities around the United States pre-civil rights. Okay, uh, fine. Um, what they did, though, is they flipped it one year and said, we actually think you, you know, of a different skin color, in other words, you know, Caucasians should leave campus. And Brett Weinstein, you know, who's progressive, he's liberal, he voted for Bernie Sanders, he opposed both Gulf Wars. Um, you know, I think he's pretty much a Marxist in economic views. Uh, he, he just said no, uh, you know, uh, you know, and maybe his Jewishness had something to do with it as well. Uh, he understood um, as some do and should, that the individual is what matters and that the tragedy of much of history has been when you don't treat individuals as individuals. You treat them as Jews in Germany. You treat them as blacks in the American South and, and you know, in, in the entire United States during the period of slavery and afterward. Um, you're, you're segmenting people, not, you know, you're not treating them in, in law and policy as equal individuals before the law. You're treating them as different based on their color and ethnicity or gender, right? Women didn't receive the vote. I think it was until what, 1918 in the United it's States? The reintroduction of segregation. Right. And and that's, again, a modern mistake, a modern example of the identity, identity politics movement. Now, this this is another outgrowth, but to, to finish off in Weinstein. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, just so the listeners understand what happened there. Weinstein said, no, I'm not leaving campus. And then he was basically hounded off. There was a mob that showed up after his class. And you can see them becoming increasingly agitated and yelling at him and telling him to leave. And there's the threat of violence. Uh, and in fact, he's told by the administration, you may want to, you know, you may want to leave. And at one point, um, you know, and I describe it in the book, you know, you can see, and, and if you, you click through the video uh, of Weinstein, you know, being harassed, uh, you can sense the danger that's coming. Well, he does leave campus and never returns and engages in a settlement with, uh, with, uh, with Evergreen College. But I mean, if you can't, as a Jewish white person uh, on a left-wing campus, say, I'm not giving into identity politics, uh, I don't believe that we should congregate by color. I mean, that shows you how far the woke revolution has penetrated and how dangerous it is. Okay, so let's talk historical, right? So it's it feels like socialism is is infiltrating in a way that I would have never thought possible, certainly not in the United States. And and that the next step is communism. We're getting to the point where these universities are breeding grounds, in my opinion, for this, well, it didn't work there, but that's because they didn't do it right. And it, it's like they keep wanting to try this collective mind system where from each their ability to each according to their need, like it's just, we're starting to get to this. And and victim cult, culture, in my opinion, is a, is a step on that stone, on that path where okay, well, I feel like I'm a victim, so you must adhere to my pain. I feel like I need your money because I can't earn it. It's it's a very, it, it feels like it goes side, side by side or, or it coincides with one another. Am I wrong about that? Or, Well, I would describe it slightly different. I would describe it this way. I think what's happening, I don't necessarily think socialism or communism has quite the ideological attraction it did in the you know, mid 20th century or later, you know, before or later. I think what's happening, though, is, you know, of course, you've got a generation that doesn't, you know, remember the Berlin Wall or the difference between East right. Berlin and West Berlin, right? I mean, I visited Cuba about uh, 14 years ago now, and I saw what communism does. Um, I never got to East Berlin, um, but the same principle applies. 
Um, and it's this uh, progressive notion, though, that that everything can be corrected from the top down. And so, again, people make simplistic assumptions. So there's a number of things going on. One, there's a misunderstanding of the economy. Um, you know, if you look at differences in outcomes between groups, black Americans, white American, Asian Americans, others, and you see differences, then you think, oh, it must be due to discrimination, which, again, is, is ridiculous, um, you know, because whites are kind of in the middle of that, um, not at the top of the income heap. Uh, and there are the other factors that we talked about. But there's this notion that somehow the economy is a fixed pie, and that if you succeed, it must be at the expense of someone else. This has been a, an historic mistake of socialism and, and communism. Um, so I think that mistake is being made again. Not consciously, though, people wanted to be socialist or communist necessarily. I mean, you've got a few people like Bernie Sanders and, you know, um, you know the 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 junior, uh, sorry, the I don't want to say the senator, the the congresswoman from New York, um, whose name escapes me, uh, Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, yes. yes. And um, so you've got a few self-professed socialists, perhaps. But I, I, I think it's more that people don't understand the economy is not a fixed pie. It grows. And your success doesn't mean it's taken from me. We can both succeed. In fact, that's why the economy is bigger in real terms after inflation now than two centuries ago or 50 years ago or five years ago. So I think there's an economic misunderstanding. But then also there is this notion, a very simplistic notion, that any disparities in outcomes must be due to racism. I mean, it's, it's, again, so you're ignoring education, you're ignoring geography. A greater proportion of black Americans live, for example, in the South still. And we know that for every American in the South, incomes are lower on average than the Northeast or the Western United States. So that also explains differences in outcomes, geography, and along with education, along with family breakdown. So there are a number of things going on. But you touched on something a moment ago that I think is worth also going after. There is this infatuation with pure culture today, which explains the growing movement towards, say, uh, black graduation ceremonies or indigenous, you know, um, kind of separation from the mainstream. And it's it's it is a new um, uh, what did you call it? it it's uh, you know, it's a new segregation, but but voluntary this time. Now, where this is coming from, I believe, is it's infatuation with culture. Uh, and you see this um, throughout history where people think, OK, I've been abused or my ancestors were abused or my tribe has been abused. Again, however you want to define tribe, color, ethnicity, gender, whatever. You know, you're all NASCAR fans, whatever it is, whatever you're however you want to identify yourself as, you know, your main priority, you're, you know, what you think you are. Um, my tribe has been abused in the past or now. And so there's a there's a defense mechanism that goes on that says, OK, uh, especially once maybe you beat back the discrimination, you know, real discrimination and the rest of it. And you say, OK, you know, to succeed, we need to be culturally pure. We need to kind of renew respect for our own roots. So, again, you know, there's some sense to that. I mean, if you're, you know, an Indian American, a Native American, and, you know, maybe some of your culture was you know, suppressed in some select cases at some points. Well, OK, you know, uh, you know, you may want to bring some of that back for your own purposes. Um, right. You know, people do that. But here's the danger. That's not going to save you because, again, cultural appropriation, cultural borrowing is a good thing. And the notion that pure culture will save you um, is really dangerous because it excludes other people. It excludes learning from others. And so let me give some clear examples from history. Europeans borrowed, you know, Europeans used to have what? Roman numerals. Try and imagine a math class trying to figure out how to add, you know, X, Y, you know, X, I, I times, you know, <laughs> V, I, I. Like, you know, we never would have progressed as a society anywhere in the world with uh, Roman numerals. Well, Europeans borrowed Arabic numbering. I understand the Arabs borrowed from Indians, you know, so that was a good example of cultural borrowing. Now, um, the danger, let me give you a clear example from the victim cult. This notion that we should be, you know, pure in culture and that will save us. It is defensive. It is a defense mechanism. Germans went through this in the early 1800s. They've been occupied by the French. They were victims of the French. And then they beat back the French. And they looked back and said, how did that happen? Well, we weren't strong enough. We weren't pure enough. And they looked back to Frederick the Great, uh, an emperor who had, you know, conquered much of Europe, as Germans do every couple of centuries, and said, you know, let's, let's go back to Frederick the Great and be pure Germans. Now, what did that mean? Well, in the context of the early 19th century, it wasn't about race yet. It was about culture. You know, you have to be born in Germany. Um, I mean, it was partly about race. You had to be, you know, Protestant for the most part. Um, you certainly couldn't be Jewish. And even if you converted to Christianity in Germany at the time, you weren't accepted really as an authentic German. Right. There was this notion of blood and soil. But they, they became enamored by this notion of pure German culture in a variety of ways. And this went on for 
60, 70 years, and then they glommed on to pure race, which the Nazis picked up in the 1930s. But Germans were infatuated with this notion for a very long time. But the danger was, of course, when you, when you become infatuated with your own culture, whatever it is, it excludes other people. Um, and, and you don't learn anymore. I mean, the Germans, it wasn't just Jews that, you know, deep sort of German nationalists, you know, were opposed to. Uh, Germans were opposed to, you know, the British, the English, and liberalism, as we would understand it, classical liberalism, free enterprise. They were collectivist in their mindset. They didn't value right. the individual. And we know where all of that led. It led to the destruction of the land of Bach and Beethoven. And, and Germany became known for what? Dachau and Bergen-Belsen, concentration camps. And that's actually where the subtitle of the victim cult comes from, where victim cults, and Germany was one between 1800 and 1945, Victim cults can destroy entire civilizations. It destroyed German civilization, the best parts of it, uh, pre-Nazi, and it almost destroyed English civilization and American civilization because of World War II. I mean, if the Nazis had won, that would have been it for Great Britain, and America and Canada would have been little islands in the sea of tyranny around the world. Do you see, like... I, like I said, and I, I'll admit to my audience, I haven't completely finished Mark's book yet. I'm very close, but... Um, do you see any way out of this for us? I mean, history certainly is a lesson for many people to learn. However, it seems that nobody cares to actually pay attention to it. So what are some things from a, a mm. cultural perspective that you see where we could prevent this escalation that we're seeing with the victim cult? Well, I want to be careful not to be glib. Um, as I mentioned to people, with respect to Tony Robbins, and, you know, God bless him, uh, this is not a one, two, three, how we can, you know, exit right. victimhood. Um, I think that would be, you know, that would treat the subject matter a little too lightly. Um, the victim cult is really about warning people, uh, and yet giving some positive examples, as I mentioned, in the case of Asian Americans about uh, not getting stuck in a victim narrative. It's really dangerous for communities. Nonetheless, uh, I mean, there are lessons to be learned from history and American history included. And, and Asian Americans who form, you know, two chapters in the last part of the book are the best example of that, where, uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm not telling people just accept your victimization when it's real, right? You shouldn't, you should push back. So there's some wonderful stories in the victim cult of say Chinese Americans early on, Chinese immigrants at this point, I guess, in the 1860s and 1870s, um, who push back against prejudice of their era. One example, John Engler, governor of California, says this is a country for whites only. Well, there's an early Chinese arrival who's very eloquent and writes to the governor of California and, and, and quotes the, you know, the Bill of Rights and quotes the Constitution and says, um, uh, this is a land of opportunity for everyone and your views are false in the extreme and you know it, governor. Um, there are other examples of um, an early labor leader, a Japanese American, who says, look, I want to, I want to, you know, the union movement was very strong in the late 1800s. And there's a Japanese American who wants Japanese to be allowed into the union movement, but they're very prejudiced at this point. And they're gatekeepers. You have to be white. And they see Asian Americans as, you know, as, um, I, I didn't want to describe it. I describe it in the book. It's, it's horrifically prejudiced. So, um, but he pushes, he forms his own labor union and he keeps writing to the American Federation of Labor saying, listen, I believe in your principles of union solidarity. Let me in. They don't uh, at that point. And um, nonetheless, they keep trying. Uh, the, the interesting thing about now, again, these cultural silos or black only events or, you know, and it's not just black Americans, it's others. And it's selected people. Let's, let's not over overgeneralize. The difference between now, where people seem to be heading towards cultural isolationism, again, is the best way to put it, and a century ago, in the late 1800s, is new arrivals to the United States and those who've been here for some time but are a minority community say, I want to be part of the mainstream. Um, and that was deliberate. They didn't want to be segmented into Chinatowns only or you know Japanese right. sections of Los Angeles. They wanted to join the mainstream. And had they not taken that view, they would have actually given in to the racists who wanted them separate. And they said, right. no, we want in. And we want to succeed in your society. Now, they wanted to bring their own traditions, their own cultures, and that made sense. Um, and in fact, that's exactly what they did. And the wonderful stories of Asian Americans in the victim cult are about how it's possible through education and entrepreneurship and fighting back in the courts and in politics. So we want a place at the table. And in fact, they help America, they help America fulfill 
uh, the traditional American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all based on the individual, which is where America always wanted to go, right? That was your founding ideals, even if imperfectly right. delivered, obviously. Um, right. We're all imperfect. All countries are imperfect. Long answer to short question. But I do think there are, there are examples, uh, especially in the education. I mean, I'll end with this and we can go on to the next question. But there's some wonderful data in one of the chapters in the victim cult on Asian Americans. In 1910, their children are graduating at rates from high school and college at rates slightly lower than white Americans. But by 1920 and 1930, the children of those of Japanese and Chinese descent, because the data is there, are graduating from high school, attending high school and graduating from college at rates higher than white Americans. And this is during the most discriminatory period in American history against Asian Americans. Um, now, what, what I drew from that is parents of that in that era are saying to the kids, go to school, you're going to get an education, you're going to succeed. And they do. And that actually sets the groundwork. That's the framework for what's now a cliche, the rise of Asian America, right? The rise of the Pacific class, as I call them, to be at the right. top of American society and incomes in other ways. So there are some very positive stories in the victim cult as well um, in terms of how we can, uh, I think, depress uh, the victim narratives. There are a couple things that I just wanted to kind of touch on. Here in the United States, there's two two things that I think are issues. Number one, I think that personal accountability and personal responsibility is a thing of the past for many people. No one likes to A, admit they're wrong, B, admit that it's okay for us to not agree with one another, and C, apologize if we do something incorrectly or wrong. And it, it has created this pass the buck and COVID has really highlighted that where it's mm. like, well, it's not my responsibility. It's because so-and-so told me I have to do it. And it's just, I feel, I don't know if it's just because of COVID that it feels like the weight is coming down incredibly heavily, but I don't understand where that shift ha happened. Mm. Like when I was raised, mm. my dad, you know, he raised me, you take responsibility for your own actions and for your own success. If you want something, you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to go after it. If you don't, then that's no one's fault but your own. And I, I think your book just does a really good job of like turning a mirror on the type of individual mm -hmm. who really enjoys not taking responsibility for themselves or for their own success or future or whatever. And I'm wondering if you experience that in Canada mm -hmm. as much as we do here in the United States if that is just kind of a global thing right now or? Well, probably more so, yeah, in Canada than the United States. I, th I think there's an ethos of individual responsibility that's still a little more alive um, in the United States. And I think your constitutional also buttresses that. Um, in Canada, we have a tradition, a collectivist tradition in, in Quebec, the French-speaking part of the country that does come from Europe, that comes from France, of course, that is more collectivist and has been for some time. So I think it's actually the notion of individual responsibility is still stronger in the United States. But I think you're onto something, Heather. It's been damaged. It's been weakened. Now, again, there's some reasons for that. And, and I think during COVID, it seems like everything has gone to an extreme. Every action, reaction seems to be, um, you know, an extreme one, right? And, and debate has, has been weakened as well because people are really sensitive. Um, now, again, part of this, I think, is think about the rise of social media. If you think back to the early 1970s, what would it take to keep an issue on the news, you know, week after week? New revelations. Watergate's the best example. New revelations leak out. New, inve new investigations occur. You know, Congress is investigating, so on and right. so forth. But in the age of social media, you can pick a tragedy from 50 years ago or 150 years ago and watch it, right? Uh, a video, um, or or you can tell a story from back then. I mean, you could always do that in books, but now you know it can go viral. Um, nobody has to pick up a book; they can, they can read a story of you know discrimination in the 1940s, and it can go viral. Now, the problem with that is people make the wrong cause and effect link again. They go, "Oh, my outcome today as person X is due to the treatment of you know tribe X, you know, 70 years ago." No, even if it seems alive as a good story, again, your choices in the last 20 years maybe matter more. Um, and this, again, goes back to the issue of, say, restitution and compensation for slavery. I mean, this is a modern day issue in the United States, and I think it's because of these simplistic cause and effect links uh, and this ability on, uh, for things to go viral in social media. But let's be clear. Um, 
you know, re individual responsibility, responsibility does not necessarily negate an apology or restitution or compensation. But what I try and do in the victim cult is bracket that and say, this is more an art than a science. Clear examples. Late 1700s, the Quakers released their slaves and give them compensation. You know, they're obviously deeply religious, deeply Christian. And they say, look, uh, we have we have committed a great evil and we we owe you, to say the least. And of course, even money will never make up for, you know, the, the evils of slavery. But the Quakers did their best and there was restitution. Um, there have been other examples where after the Holocaust, the state of West Germany pays the state of Israel money for the Holocaust. And again, nothing can make up for the Holocaust, but it was it was symbolic. Now, the reason I don't agree with compensation for slavery today is because it is 150 years ago, uh, because in fact, there were abolitionist movements from the 1820s forward in the United States and elsewhere that fought slavery. And I think it would be simplistic for the government today to use, you know, transfer money between taxpayers based on slavery. I think the closer you are to an event, um, the more cause there is for taking responsibility for it. So the Quakers for slavery, the banks for redlining in the 1920s or something, or compensating Japanese Americans for interning them during the war, as also happened in Canada to Japanese Canadians. There was some compensation and arguably not enough for stealing right. their property, for imprisoning them. So uh, I think the concept of responsibility, though, you're right, has been damaged. Um, and may I tell you the story of, of my theory of Adam and Eve that yes. I start the book with? Yes. So most of your viewers are probably familiar with the story of Adam and Eve from Genesis. So this is a creation narrative. Um, and Adam and Eve, um, what happens, you know, God creates Adam and Eve in the story. And uh, he says, look, enjoy the, this beautiful garden here. The one thing you can't do is pick fruit from the tree of good and evil. That's the, the only thing I'm asking you, don't touch it. Well, of course, you know, um, like any 14 year old, when somebody tells you not to do something, what do you do? You do it. So uh, Eve is tempted by the snake. She grabs fruit from the tree, gives it to Adam. He takes and it. And now bite. we have the 19th Amendment and we shouldn't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, but what happens? The blame game begins. And this, this is to your point about responsibility. Does anybody take responsibility and say, I'm sorry, God, you know, I disobeyed? No. Uh, Eve blames the snake. Adam blames Eve. And in fact, Adam even blames God. He says, well, God, you gave me Eve. Why'd you even so, put it in here? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody takes responsibility. Um, now this, you know, in a modern sense is, and this is, this seems to be part of human nature, but maybe that's our first instinct. You know, we're defensive, we're scared. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking to the deity, you're talking to God. Of course, you're going to be a little defensive and scared. He's right. got all the cards. And um, so it, it seems to be endemic to human nature, though, that, you know, we have to be taught to take responsibility and see the virtues of that. Uh, and of course, there's the other tragic story of Genesis where Cain, Cain and Abel, you know, Cain and Abel yeah. give a sacrifice to God. God rejects Abel's except Cain's. Cain is mad. God says, don't be mad. Just do the right thing next time. He doesn't listen. Cain doesn't. And I have this theory in the victim cult, as you know. Let's take a different look, a more sympathetic look at Cain. Maybe God is acting like a Greek deity at this point, not the Jehovah of the Old Testament, you know? Right. Maybe not the rock-solid God of the Old Testament. Maybe he's more like a Greek God at this point, you know? I mean, how did Cain, how was Cain supposed to know not to bring vegetables? Um, maybe some theologian can correct me on that. But nonetheless, I, I play with the story a little bit and say, maybe we should at least be sympathetic to Cain. He doesn't know what he's doing. And yet God rejects the sacrifice. But what he doesn't do, and this is key, he doesn't actually go to the source of his problems. If, if the source of his problem is God, maybe you should go argue to God. With God. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he argues, you know, in the Old Testament, we have other figures that argue with God. Uh, you know, Jonah, Lot, Moses, Noah, maybe not Noah, Moses, though, certainly does. They actually you know, debate God in some things, and sometimes they win. Um, so, uh, but Cain doesn't do this. Instead, he does what victims always do. You know, these chronic victims, they blame someone else. Uh, so they don't take responsibility. They don't argue with the source of their problem and they blame someone else. And in Cain's case, he argues with Abel, or sorry, he murders Abel because he's jealous of his brother. And when God comes along and says, where's your brother? I mean, you can almost see the sneer on his face. Right. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, uh, yes, you are. And you've murdered your brother. And God confronts him. And even then, Cain does not take responsibility. Right. So you're absolutely right. There's something in human nature where we don't want to take responsibility. Now, this, by the way, is very un-American. I mean, I, I think of Americans as the Harry Truman types, you know, the buck stops here. So I do think it's there's great potential for it to come back. 
but briefly, I mean, you see it all through American society. Yale college students, I'm a victim of microaggressions, really. Donald Trump, a self-professed billionaire. I know some of your listeners will love Donald Trump. Some will hate him. That's not my point. It's not a political book. The victim cult is about these, what I think are fake narratives. When Donald Trump claims to be a victim, really, you're a billionaire from Manhattan. You Man. become president. I mean, how many people get that chance? Um, and yet he complains about Megyn Kelly asking tough questions in a Fox News interview in 2015. Right. Like, please, Donald, don't go there. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, you did. I hold on. I wanted to pull up this note real quick um, on the I, I wanted to talk about what Donald Trump's perceived victimhood that he had has translated into. Right. You have 50 percent of the population believes in their heart of hearts that this election was illegitimate and it, it's gotten to the point. Now, again, mm -hmm. I know the book is not supposed to be a political book. But I'll give you my perspective just to give you a scenario. So you mentioned in your book the the piece of um, legislation, well, not legislation, the piece of uh, law that was taken to the Supreme Court by Texas, where the 23 or 26 different AGs with the different states signed mm -hmm. on board to say our citizens are issuing a grievance that their vote was discounted by illegitimate votes in other states. And I caught myself reading your book and I was, I was kind of mad at you for a second. I was like, but I did feel disenfranchised in that moment. I did feel like a victim whose vote didn't count because not because of dominion, not because of illegal votes, not because of uh, dead people voting but because those states circumvented election law and allowed different types of situations to take place. So, but the problem was you had the Giuliani's, the Donald Trump's, the all of the people talking about these crazy voting machines. And what it did was, in my opinion, it diminished our voting system. Why didn't we let that work itself out so that people could feel like coming up in 2022 that this isn't a lost cause now at this point? And so yeah. you're 100% correct in the victim cult when you talk about it, it just feels like, like I said before, it feels like by making yourself a victim because Megyn Kelly said mean words to you that oh, now a journalist as she was right to be. Yeah, right. Yeah. that now everyone hates journalists or, you know, it's mm, you've right. created. Well, these extreme reactions magnified this be, culture. You know, you mentioned something a moment ago, a moment ago, Heather, during COVID. Yeah. These extreme reactions seem to occur. Uh, the The 2020 election, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, I, I you've got my basic view, right? Which is um, I, I uh, agree with Carl Rove. I agree with the, was it the governor of Georgia, John Raffensperger? who said, this is, you know, the system's worked, actually. You know, Karl Rove said, I know what a close election is like. This was not it, right? And we speak right, in 2000, yeah. where things were hanging on a chat in Florida, and there was a couple hundred votes in one state that really made the difference. And the Democrats were wrongly back then arguing they won the election. So, um, you know, my overall view is that it wasn't stolen. Um, but I mean, you can get into the weeds, and people do, of course, on this. My right. and, and always when I speak about the victim cult, everyone will bring up an example of where they think, well, no, here's an, a real example of victimization, Mark. And uh, you know, I may agree, I may disagree, um, but uh, but that's actually my point that we're we're into this victim narrative again. We've got to be very very careful. Um, and I actually think Donald Trump's victim narrative was not terribly helpful, to say the least, and resulted in January the sixth, or even a couple of weeks ago, when he attacked Mike Pence and said, "Oh, you could have delivered me the election." No, again, I respect American institutions and democracy that way. <laughs> as a foreigner way too much um, to go down right. that road. And uh, I think every American, uh, you know, ought to as well. You built quite the country there, and quite the institutional safeguards. And with respect, or not, maybe it doesn't matter. I don't think the former president necessarily understands uh, what he was head of and how valuable that your institutions were and are. Right. And I think that's that's a danger. And that victim narrative, I think, damaged people's trust in them. Um, now, as, as I mentioned about Asian Americans, if you think something's wrong, all right, go to court, go through the process. And yeah. some people did. Now, I, I understand 
Giuliani and others are being sued by Dominion for these false claims that their voting machines didn't work. And so we'll see how that process leads out. I don't know if that's right. going to change minds. It's a bit like COVID, um, you know, and mandates and the rest of it. Donald Trump is very divisive. And, you know, it seems people are being divided, either love him or hate him, um, be that as it may. Uh, the victim narratives are entirely un unhelpful and they're very un-American. Let me give an example, another example from the victim cult of a different president who also kind of whined once in a while or complained, and yet even he never went as far as Donald Trump. And by the way, for your listeners, I mean, I pick I on left and Democrats and, and woke as well. But Richard Nixon in 1962 uh, loses the California gubernatorial election. And um, at the end of it, uh, he says, well, you won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore in a famous interview in Sacramento. And and yet people forget what he said next, which was a modicum of restoring respect and, and uh, for institutions at least for the media, uh, right there wrongly, he said, I'm not going to cancel my newspaper subscriptions uh, because I, right. I believe you're necessary. So look, I, I don't think we should take things on faith. I think if people believe they were wrong, they should go to court. Um, you know, I think, you know, the media should be held to account as much as government should. Uh, but the victim narratives can be very dangerous. And to me, it's an un-American thing. You built a wonderful country there based on the notion of individual quality before the law. Uh, and you got there by 1964. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really key. And the institutions that Americans have built have been deliberate uh, up in Canada. Sometimes you'll hear, well, Americans can't get anything done. Look at how gets stuff gets stuck in Congress <laughs> between Congress and the white house. It's true, though. <laughs> but, yeah. But I have to remind Canadians that's on purpose. Right. right? Yeah. George Washington didn't want a monarchy. He didn't want to replicate King George the third. Yeah. Uh, he didn't want to replicate European tyrants. And so, you know, your founders did a very smart thing, which was to divide concentrated power up. In Canada, we have, you know, what are called sometimes four-year dictatorships, majority governments in parliament that can pretty right. much do almost anything. And and they you, tried. Well, they, yeah. Well, you, you, in fact, you saw it this week in terms of uh, an emergency act on, on the part of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoking, uh, you know, infringements on civil rights that I think are ridiculous and, and uncalled for. Uh, but Americans... Um, designed a system precisely so no president, whether it's Donald Trump or George Washington or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or anyone or Joe Biden can have all the cards, right? right. You have to negotiate with senators and, and the Congress. And of course, you've got, you know, a Supreme Court that also, you know, serves as a bit of a check and protects your constitution and hopefully does most days. So you've got these checks and balances deliberately. And so, yeah, no one can get everything done yesterday, like sometimes you'd like, but that's a good thing. Um, yeah, and it prevents even, look, I, I think Donald Trump is a bit of a force of chaos for both good and bad. And uh, and, and I think uh, the American system was set up precisely so so no one can get their way 100% of the time. And that's a good thing because the yeah. alternative is tyranny. Yeah, I agree. Um, I wanted to ask, because we're getting close to our one hour mark and I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, I wanted to ask one more question uh, in the victim cult, you end with remedies. And like I said, I haven't gotten there yet, but can you talk about like, has victim culture gained too much of a foothold or do you think that, that we can, we can stop it at this point? Well, the victim culture certainly has. Yeah. Victim cults have certainly gained in prominence. Right. And uh, that's why people are so touchy. Right. I keep saying the weakest minds have the loudest voices right now is what it feels like. Maybe, or the most sensitive. I mean, look, I like to think I'm a pretty sensitive male. and uh, But look, I, I think there's 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 an uber sensitivity that's going on out there. And it is connected to this notion that I'm injured because of what happened 50 years ago to my ancestors or 500 years ago. Right. That's a really dangerous road to go. Don't I, in the victim cult, I write about, you know, you write about the remedies. A couple of things, I guess, off the top of my head, I'd say that I'd extract from, from the, the victim cult as lessons for people. First of all, stop identifying with people 50 or 100 or you know 500 years ago, or at least more than 100 years ago. All of us today would probably prefer our neighbors to our, our ancestors because their views were really weird and intolerant compared to ours, right? You go back right. 100 years, most males didn't think women should vote. Um, you know, and it was a highly prejudicial era. <laughs> You know, I think I think there was a Swift Canton that got around to it in 1984. So you know, uh, yeah, you know, some parts of the world are a bit you know laggard in that. But uh, you know, look, most of us would refer our neighbors of any ancestry, any color, any whatever, 
compared to our own ancestors of more than 100 years ago, because they were they were really a different type. And of course, this shows the progress, I think, positive progress towards respect for the individual. So there's that, you know, stop romanticizing your ancestors. I mean, one of the chapters um, I was going to entitle it, uh, you know, all our ancestors are bastards. And instead, <laughs> I gave it a much more, you know, light title. But, uh, you know, stop romanticizing your ancestors is perhaps lesson number one. Put history in its proper context. Um, I mean, in this sense, you can't correct history. I mean, we we talked about Marxism a little bit about a little bit about Marxism and its influence today. Look, at least Marxists in the 20th century believed they could create a utopian future. Um, now they were wrong. I disagree with them uh, then right. and now, but they were utopians about the future. We've got people alive today who were tearing down statues, you know, people like Winston Churchill, not just like Stalin or, you know, Southern Confederate generals who were favoring slavery. I mean, we're, people will, will attack history today on some sort of weird notion that it should have been perfect. Marxists at least thought they could, you know, create a perfect future. They never right. thought they could correct the past. We have people running around today who claim to be victims based on what happened 500 years ago and think that through compensating for what happened in slavery over 150 years ago or what, trying to resettle fights between, you know, Islam and Christianity around the Crusades that somehow, you know, they can use that as a justification for modern day something. So we've got a lot of weird utopianism happening as applied to the past that is as opposed to the future. That's even more silly than what Marxists were into in the last century and now. And I guess uh, the third point I would say is um, try and remember that you're, at least in a liberal democracy, in a democracy, uh, and by liberal, I just mean, you know, you have the institutions that separate power, like I said, in the United States. Um, try and remember that your choices for the most part in a democracy, in a free country, um, and we do live in, you know, you live in one of the most free countries in the world, and so do I, you know, with exceptions. But try and remember that in a, in a democracy today, you really do have much more control of your destiny than you might believe you're being told today. And I say that because of the experience of my grandparents um, on both sides. But the story is my grandmother almost made it out of Europe in 1914 as a three-year-old. And then the war ensued, World War One, and her and her family went to Siberia, went back to central Ukraine. They're Germans, they're shipped around, you know, for about 13, 14 years. They wonder, you know, almost like, um, you know, uh, Jews in the Old Testament, you know, coming out of Egypt. They finally make it to Canada. Um, they lived through the Great Depression. My father, my grandfather's side had some tragedies as well, but I never remember them complaining as I was growing up. Um, right. In fact, I remember them being very grateful for having made it to North America, in, in my case, Canada, but, you know, they might have shown up in the United States. I've got ancestors there. I've got a great, great grandfather who fought on the side of the North or, you know, and he's in a civil war uniform and he settled in Wisconsin. Um, now, my grandparents, I remember growing up seeing red roses in the front yard and some fruit trees in the backyard. And the fruit was similar, I believe, to what my grandmother would have experienced as a young girl in, in central Ukraine as, as a girl growing up and even later. And they never, and I remember as a kid one time, I saw my grandmother sign a document and she, she signed it with an X. And I didn't understand why. And I asked my my dad and he said, well, she never learned how to read or write because she was a child refugee. But I never remember her complaining about that. Instead, they made the best of the world. And frankly, their choices were much more determinative over time uh, than what happened earlier in their lives. And similarly for me, I could claim to be a victim, I guess, of what her tragedies of World War One or the Great Depression or whatever. Um, you know, and they had some property in the city where I grew up that, you know, if they'd held it till, you know, they passed away, I'd be a rich man today. <laughs> they didn't hold it. Now, but my choices are much more determinative, right? If I'd lived my entire well, life. Well, now you're a victim, Mark, because your right. parents didn't hold over that property. Exactly. So, but, but uh, I, I mentioned that example because, um, you know, my choices are much more determinative, right? Uh, right. And their choices were much more determinative. Yes, they suffered in the 1920s, but, you know, by the 1960s, 1970s, you know, they'd owned their own house in the, in the city where I grew up. You know, uh, they were never rich, but they were they were solid middle class people. Um, and uh, my, my grandfather was, you know, I don't, I don't think his education went past grade three and he used to build houses, you know, uh, blue collar houses. Well, their choices were much more determinative when it, when it came right down to it by the end of their life than anything else. And maybe that's the lesson from the victim cult. I'm not denying tragedies. I'm not denying that real victims exist. What I'm trying to remind everybody is 
Don't get stuck there. If you do, you and your culture will suffer. And um, the bright part of this is like Asian Americans and like my grandparents, your choices, at least in a democracy, we're not talking Stalin, Soviet Union, at least in a democracy, your choices have the potential to lead to much better outcomes than perhaps people give all of us credit for today. Yeah, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I have so far from what I've read is victims and tragedies are real, but not every tragedy creates a victim. You, right. And that's a choice. And I think that that's, you just, you did a remarkable job. I want to compliment you. I've, I'm actually, it's kind of funny. I run a book club. Mm. So every, every Wednesday night we host like a Twitter space. I don't know if you use Twitter or not, but um, I've just gotten back onto it after being gone okay. for a couple years. I'll have to add you whenever we get off, but Please. we're reading Atlas Shrugged right now for the book club. And so like I'm reading your book and that book and I'm like, I'm starting to get to the point where like every person I see, I'm like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You should, you know, like, I'm, I just, I'm, I'm in this big individualist mode right now. So your book coupled with hers has been pretty remarkable, but um, can you please tell everyone where they can find you and where they can, I'll put the link for your book um, on here. Do you have, do you want people to buy it directly from you? Would you prefer they buy it from Amazon? It, I know. Yeah, they buy it in their local bookstore, Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, okay. But if you go to victimcult.com, you'll see all the links to that, right? <clears throat> uh, you be much more expensive to ship from Canada. So, and it is available in American bookstores and, and online, like as you mentioned at Amazon. So, uh, but if you go to victimcult.com, you can see some excerpts. Uh, you can see some book recommendations from others who have read it already, uh, but you can link right to where you can buy it for sure uh, in the United States. It's available across the United States. So. And is there a social media that you prefer? Um, do you want people LinkedIn, to follow you there? LinkedIn, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I quit a couple of years ago while I was busy with something else and I'm just restarting, a, you know, a Twitter now. And so uh, feel free to follow me there, but LinkedIn, Facebook, um, uh, YouTube, I've got a few videos that I'm starting up again there. So, um, but I'd say if you go to victimcult.com and uh, you'll you'll see some of the links there or markmilkey.com. So, uh, my last name is spelt with an E, not a Y, but uh, you you uh, you can find me at markmilkey.com as well as victimcult.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I love the book. So thank you so thank much. Thank you, Heather. Thank right, you for the interview, care. Heather. Take care. No problem. Have a great day. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, drop a comment, subscribe, and don't forget to check out my Patreon for exclusive content. The link is in the description. And most importantly, do not forget, free men do not need permission from their government. Their government needs permission from them. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death!